Welcome to Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. You've tuned in to hear compelling conversations on hot topics and trends with law enforcement professionals and personalities from across Canada. And now, a message from our sponsor, Wilfrid Laurier University. With Laurier's 100% online degree programs, you can earn your undergraduate or graduate degree from a top-ranked university with an academic and institutional tradition that's over 100 years old. Choose from a Bachelor of Arts in Policing, Bachelor of Arts in Criminology and Policing, Master of Public Safety, and five graduate diplomas in the areas of Emergency Management, National Security, Countering Crime, Border Strategies, and GIS and Data Analytics. Transfer credits apply for basic constable training towards a BA in policing. For more information, visit www.laurierpublicsafety.com. Hello, Blue Line the Podcast subscribers. We hope you're doing well, and welcome back to another episode of Blue Line the Podcast. I'm Brianna Charlebois, the editor of Blue Line Magazine. Today we are joined by Amy Ramsey, the past president of the International Association of Women Police and the founding president of the Ontario Women in Law Enforcement. Amy retired on June 30th, 2018, as a sergeant with the OPP and has taught at Laurier University, Sheridan and Seneca Colleges, the Canadian Police College, Dalhousie University, and Northwestern University. She holds undergraduate degrees in sociology, women's studies, and religious studies. She also holds master's degrees in criminology, education, theological studies, as well as doctorates in criminal justice and management and organization specializing in leadership. Today, she joins us from Prince Edward Island. Welcome, Amy, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here, Brianna. Awesome. So I know I just kind of gave a little quick bio. Um, I know your career has a lot more depth than that. So maybe just to start, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your career in policing. Okay, well, <laughs> have to have to remember back a long way here. Uh, it's been uh, 30 years. Uh, I started. I actually started with uh, Toronto Ambulance when uh, when I came out of university at University of Brunswick, actually in the first place. And uh, um, the only reason I went there, uh, not that I didn't love it, I did. I absolutely loved it. But at the time, uh, there was a, um, a vision requirement in policing that I couldn't reach. You had to have. I think it was um, the worst year of vision could be was 2040. And then along came the uh, radial keratotomy, which eventually led to the laser surgery. And and now it's commonplace. Anybody that has poor vision can simply get the surgery done, and they can passed the eye test. Uh, so it was three, uh, kind of a three year wait for me to be able to get the eye test uh, or sort of the eye surgery, the radial keratotomy. And once I had that done, then I was eligible to uh, apply for policing. And I did with three different police services and ended up actually going with Peel uh, in the first place and spent eight years there. Uh, and then transferred over to the uh, OPP, uh, different style of policing, which interested me. Uh, municipal policing uh, is a little bit different than uh, provincial policing and provincial policing is a little bit different than uh, federal policing, as I found out as I went along. Um, but one of the things uh, that uh, that I that appealed to me was uh, with provincial policing and the same with federal policing, uh, you have more uh, freedom in terms of um, access to the case you're working on. Where I found in uh, and and it's not a bad thing necessarily in prevent in uh, municipal policing. As soon as you went to your call and determined what it was, you were basically turning it over to other investigators to do their job. Uh, for example, if you went to the scene of a homicide, you might do the, the initial uh, 
survey of the scene, call in the, the people that you need, but then it becomes, uh, it'll be taken over by the homicide squad or the special accident investigation or whoever, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, and basically you're out of it from then on, where with provincial policing, uh, particularly for people that, that work up north, they are it. And they go to the case, they handle the case, they take the case through court, they call in any uh, specialties that they need. Uh, but there's a lot more demand for uh, individual leadership, I think, in provincial policing and in federal than there is in municipal. Because in municipal, you always have the supervisor close by to, to assist you. Uh, where up in, uh, say, northern Ontario, for example, uh, your closest backup might be two days away, depending on where you are. So it's your case from beginning to end. And uh, that's sort of, not that I worked up in northern Ontario, but that's that kind of attitude towards uh, policing, that, that style of policing uh, certainly appealed to me because there was, uh, uh, you tended to get, I think, a lot more involved in, in your work. So for that reason, um, and I, I went through several areas, um, always loved working the road. Um, I was also a breathalyzer technician. I worked with special accident investigation, general patrol, and then eventually went off to the police college and taught down there, um, which is interesting because I knew when I uh, uh, attended there as a student that I wanted to come back there and teach one day. And, and uh, teaching, I think, was kind of always in my future. So it was, uh, I would say, one of the very best parts of my career uh, was getting to teach at the Ontario Police College. And I was there for, uh, I, guess, I think it was two years, uh, come to think of it. Um, but certainly, um, it taught me a lot in terms of where we need to go in policing as well, uh, because I got a close up look at what was being taught then, and um, uh, along with my trail of education that kind of never ended, um, it made me more aware of, of the changes that we need to be making in policing and that aren't happening. And if we don't uh, soon start taking this a little bit more seriously, uh, there's going to be a lot more than demands to defund the police uh, because of what's going on in, in policing right now. So with that in mind, I went through, um, uh, I obviously have very, obviously have very varied interests and I went through uh, a, a stage with religion, just wanting to know more about it. And that's hence the degrees in uh, theological studies and actually uh, just finished uh, a master's in divinity, but I also got just uh, became uh, just got accepted. I start next month actually in uh, uh, a third doctoral degree, and this one is in uh, very much in, in line with teaching, and it's uh, a doctor of education uh, specialist in, in uh, curriculum and instruction. So I'm very much yeah. looking forward to getting into that and, and continuing on with uh, my teaching, particularly at uh, Laurier University. Awesome. Well, that sort of leads into uh, my first question then, um, which is sort of your thoughts on the importance of education in policing. Obviously, you have a, a wide breadth of, of knowledge and degrees, so I think there's no better person to sort of talk on the importance of education. Yeah, I don't think there's anything more important in policing these days than, uh, than the topic of education, because that's going to be the key to the changes that, that you're going to see uh, happening in policing, and, and hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, I was reminded of uh, an article that I read uh, in the Toronto Star in 2018, and um, it was published on, on uh, I can't remember, did just know it was March 2018, but the headline caught my attention because it said, why having a degree will benefit police officers. And in it, the author or the reporter uh, wrote, the quality of policing is on the decline and a cultural shift is needed. And three years later, those, bear, those words bear more truth than, than ever before. Uh, policing definitely needs a cultural change. I don't think anybody uh, will disagree with that. 
but that's only going to come from higher educational standards. And the second thing I noticed was uh, CNN did a fairly extensive report on this by hiring more women. And we'll get into that a little bit later on. Um, we certainly know that with modern policing, uh, it's founded on public trust. And if you don't have the public trust, you're not gonna get a lot of help from uh, civilians when you're, when you're investigating your cases and, and uh, just in general um, communication and, and um, working with the, with the public. So we need that public trust to be maintained. And unfortunately that, that trust gets tested uh, when the police cause the death of a civilian or uh, cause serious injury to a civilian or the police behave in a manner uh, that seem to fall below the professional standards expected of them. And we're certainly seeing a lot of that nowadays. Uh, I mean, it's pretty hard to ignore the behavior of uh, some police officers. Uh, for example, um, Eric Post with the Ottawa Police and Nathan Parker and with Niagara Police, uh, they've been in the news, they've been subject of uh, uh, CBC Fifth Estate uh, investigations. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to ignore when a police officer commits what we would term a criminal act and they end up getting away with it. In fact, they get to keep the job even. Laura, there's a, a lawyer by the name of Danielle Robitaille. She was involved uh, in the Tulloch um, uh, inquiry that uh, was published, uh, actually probably the most recent uh, police inquiry that's uh, that's been published. And she calls for a more transparent police disciplinary system. And she feels that there needs to be, and I totally agree, an independent body hearing cases of police misconduct. She's correct. We, the police have long shown, and even when I was in policing, I recognized it uh, very clearly, the police lack the ability to discipline their own. And it's, it's becoming abundantly clear. And I think the public's getting pretty tired of it as well. She also uh, is correct when she states, there's a complete crisis of legitimacy in policing. And there is, and it's because we're so bad at investigating our own. Um, and it seems, um, oh, well, we are talking before this started that the um, Canadian Armed Forces are undergoing a, a similar situation. Um, they've had their last two commanders forced to uh, step aside because of allegations of inappropriate sexual misconduct. Uh, but I, what I found really interesting about that was, first of all, not only are their problems similar to policing, some of the policing problems, but a retired general, a left-handed general uh, by the name of Chris, uh, Chris Whitecross was right on the money when she said, this is actually a watershed moment uh, for the Canadian Armed Forces. And I think it is for policing as well. The, the public's pretty much fed up with, with what's been going on, but with um, both the Armed Forces and with policing, if we don't start taking seriously uh, the problems that we're encountering, within our uh, respective organizations. And we don't take advantage of the timing that's happening now and make appropriate changes for the future. You're gonna hear a lot more cries that are a lot worse than defund the police uh, because our reputation, the police reputation with the public has, it's, it's basically being destroyed. And it's, it's being destroyed because we have some officers that are not, um, that really shouldn't be in policing in the first place, let's face it. So what that leaves us with is right now, the end result is that we have three basic facts staring us on the face. One is the culture of policing has to change. And two, the police have proven that they cannot be trusted to discipline their own. And internal discipline is a huge problem for police services. And none of these facts 
will improve until we recognize that education is the key. The bottom line is, you'll never change the culture of policing without raising educational standards. And if you look in the uh, uh, policing standards for Ontario, you'll very quickly find that, uh, what do you need to get into policing in Ontario? Well, you need a Canadian high school diploma or equivalent. And that standard is far too low and it doesn't allow for a higher standard. Even though, and it's fair to say that a lot of police services are hiring um, recruits with degrees, it, it, they have to make it a standard. It has to be the starting point for people to get into policing because for, lo- for too long, uh, we've accepted people that simply didn't have the necessary education to be able to make the decisions they were being faced with out in the field. And that's what's led to a lot of our problems as well. Uh, two American researchers actually last year, 2020, uh, suggested that there's five reasons why police officers anywhere, whether it's Canada or the United States, um, should have a university degree. And they include things like they're less likely to use violence, and that's certainly true. Uh, they're more likely to be problem oriented. And uh, being problem oriented means that you're identifying, um, you're using a strategy that identifies crime problems within the community. Education also enables officers to make better, uh, to relate better with the community because quite often during their studies at some point, they've been involved with something going on in the community. And that gives them a better feel for what happens in the community and also how, um, how useful the community, community can be to them in terms of assisting them in their work and especially in investigations. Uh, education also helps uh, officers identify best practices. They know what works and they know what doesn't work, but more importantly, they understand the reasons why they work or don't work. And that's important when you're moving forward. And finally, education simply builds better leaders. Um, And there's lots of uh, evidence uh, about that. I remember uh, in uh, a number of my presentations when I taught at uh, at college, um, I always used to start because it was a policing program uh, with a, 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 you tell me uh, what what the answer is to this. And we would go through five different police services and ask, uh, five of the largest services. And uh, I asked the question, how many chiefs did they have and how many had university degrees? And, and even to this day, the number is shockingly low when you consider uh, policing is over 200 years old here in Canada. And, uh, and we've had, we have had so few leaders that actually had a university education because it was never felt that it was required before, but it certainly is now. Times have changed and, and the educational standard has to change with it. So there's an abundance of scholarly journals and articles uh, that come to the same conclusion. If you want to change the culture in policing, then you need to hire officers who have a university education and more women. And here's why. Why more women? I mentioned that earlier. Interestingly, since the 1970s, women have entered policing with significantly higher education than men, and they're more likely to use communication rather than force to solve problems. Uh, If you remember the Christopher Commission after uh, the Rodney King incidents in Los Angeles uh, um, many years ago now, one of the the findings that came out of that and one of the uh, recommendations was that the American police uh, um, services or departments, or I guess they're called down there, um, would do well to hire more women. And because it would cost them a lot less, because women tend not to get involved or embroiled in the lawsuits uh, from excessive use of force that men do. Uh, They're also far better at communicating and de-escalating situations, which is so important uh, in in any confrontation with police today. So today, uh, the standard to enter policing should be at least a university undergraduate degree. And that's been echoed by every policing report that's been done in the last quarter century. Yet the standard remains that of a high school diploma or equivalent. 
fortunately, we have some forward-thinking universities such as Wilfrid Laurier uh, University in Brantford, Ontario. Uh, and they're pretty much taking the lead from what I've, uh, from the research I've done in terms of uh, educating both future and existing police officers because they offer both an undergraduate and a graduate degree in policing. And there's no doubt, but what this kind of education will lead to a better police officer and to a much greater professionalism within the law enforcement field than exists today. And, and that's certainly what we need to look forward to. Right, right. And this, uh, this ha kind of has me thinking, I know you have a plethora of uh, degrees. So I'm wondering um, if someone, you know, is an existing police officer or is thinking about a career in policing, where would you suggest they start? So one of the things, one of the programs that uh, I always look at when, when programs are developed, and I, I'm, I'm going to throw myself uh, uh, out here and say I did, one of, my, uh, one of my dissertations was done on the Police Foundations program. Um, I was highly critical of it for a reason. First of all, it needed to be criticized. And secondly, if you don't uh, bring it to the attention of people, no change will happen. Police Foundations program happened in the colleges uh, before uh, Laurier got going on, on their uh, much improved uh, degree program. And the biggest difference between the two is that uh, you, ha you have to have um, an abundance of uh, social sciences mixed in with, with police learning. You can't just uh, teach people how to drive a car fast and how to shoot a gun and how to um, uh, you know, uh, engage in physical combat, um, that sort of thing. You need, you need the psychologies and sociologies and, and those related studies that bring you, uh, give you a well-rounded education in policing because it's, you have to be master of a, a lot of things when you're out there on the road, when you're being a police officer, and you, know, you have to know how to handle people uh, so that you're not getting into con constant confrontations and that you're, you're doing your best to assist them in the best way you can. And, and part of that is your ability to communicate, get along, understand um, the situations that you're in because uh, uh, not everyone stop is going to be uh, or become involved with is going to be driving a Mercedes. Uh, they may be walking along the highway hitchhiking because that's their only mode of transportation. And being able to communicate with people at all levels is, is so important uh, when it comes into uh, uh, education for police officers. And I felt that that was where uh, the police foundations fell down. Uh, it was a good idea in the first place to get to actually start getting some education, but the uh, the colleges, uh, well, let's face it, it was a cash cow for the colleges uh, because they had very little overhead and uh, there were tons of people wanted to take the course because they saw it as a, a step to getting into policing. Uh, but it, it just wasn't. Uh, and I think if you look at the uh, students that graduated from that program, uh, a number of them realized that by the end of it and it, quite a number of them actually ended up going into university uh, using some credits to bridge over to uh, a university, for example, Lakehead uh, and Georgian have articulation agreements. A number of uh, Humber Wealth also have articulation agreements. And they were able to transfer some of their credits over uh, towards a degree program. And that made it a better program. But I think Laurier's got the, the idea right, right from the start. And that is get the, get the right courses to the students uh, right from the start and concentrate more on the academic side of it because you can pick up the, the physical side of things and learning how to shoot and how to uh, uh, do self-defense and that sort of thing. That can be learned on the side and how to drive fast. And, and most people aren't too, uh, aren't, uh, don't need a lot of uh, work on that. But anyway, uh, those skills can be taught outside of the classroom. It's the classroom skills that are gonna um, produce better police officers that are gonna make better decisions 
And those are the people that are going to make policing better in the future. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and one of the key parts that you had mentioned a couple of times earlier was um, getting women and uh, minorities pursuing careers in policing and, and recruit and recruiting people who identify as women and um, are part of the minority uh, community. So I'm wondering whether you can kind of expand on that idea and and talk about maybe the barriers um, to women and minorities when they're pursuing a career in policing and and why you sort of think that there is this imbalance in Canada. Well, this is a, it's an interesting topic because uh, most police services, with the possible exception of Toronto, who seems to be uh, catching on pretty quickly, don't seem to recognize that the message that your organization, your policing organization sends is important when it comes to recruiting women and minorities. And that pretty much explains why there's such a scarcity of women in law enforcement. So if we look at it this way, uh, both male and female officers uh, are doing the same jobs but women are often called to the occupation for a variety of different personal and professional reasons from men. For example, uh, both men and women value things like job security, but women also place high priority on things like uh, supportive work environment, job enrichment, family-friendly work policies, uh, a choice of work assignment, and they want a social contribution uh, to be part of their job. So these are very important issues when uh, that turn women off to policing and send them off in, towards other jobs because we have barriers even before we try to attract policing because in a lot of cases, history is showing, showing that other than job security, uh, women don't have these other priorities. Or they don't see those priorities in the job that, that need to be there. And there's also uh, generational differences uh, that create another hurdle between command staff personnel and and the uh, uh, women and minorities that they're trying to attract. Uh, for example, I remember, I remember a few years back, we seemed to have a, an influx of recruits with tattoos or body art, uh, as they like to call it. And one of our, um, uh, I won't say which service I was with at the time, but you could probably guess, but the, the head of the police service uh, was determined that uh, that was just not acceptable and we should make a policy and ban tattoos. Well. Let's face it, uh, first of all, the reason why a lot of people have tattoos is because it's very meaning, meaningful to them. It's maybe the name of a loved one or uh, something that happened that was significant in their life or whatever, whatever the reason, it's important to them. So um, at the time I was working in, in the policy area and, and I, knew, I knew they would never fly. Um, and, I, and, and I tried to tell them that and said that, you know, if, if we if we make this a policy right away, we're going to get a complaint or a grievance right away and we're going to lose it. And that's exactly what happened because I was told to go ahead with it. And uh, of course, as soon as it came out, a number of individuals uh, and, and I, I know exactly where they were coming from, said, you know, what, you have no right to say that I can't have a, a tattoo. Obviously, if it's a swastika on the forehead, that's a little bit different than having, you know, um, uh, a heart with you know, the mother's name, his or her mother's name on, on their arm or someplace like that. But that's a generational difference. And, and those will pop up from time to time. And I think that policing has to be uh, cautious of how they approach them, uh, these, uh, these differences, because they're important to the people that we're trying to recruit. And if you, if you take that away from them or say that that's not acceptable, you're gonna turn them off right away and they're not, and they're not gonna be interested in policing. So the police service needs to use, uh, also needs to use 
women and minorities to recruit other women and minorities. And when I mentioned Toronto earlier, I see a lot of uh, Toronto, high ranking Toronto female officers, both uh, black and white, uh, putting in to being highlighted on Facebook and in their uniform, they're all, all three, all three are superintendents, by the way. Um, and as soon as I saw it, I thought, wow, what a great idea that is because so many people are on Facebook. So many people are going to see that and say, you know what, here's a woman, here's a black woman that made it to, uh, uh, superintendent, uh, actually it's Superintendent Stacey Clark is the first uh, high, uh, the highest ranking uh, black woman to be a superintendent. Right. And uh, it, it's things like these that um, will attract will attract women and other minor and minorities to, uh, to consider policing where they might not have uh, initially. And of course, there's obviously age old barriers that uh, women experience once they get into policing, uh, such as harassment, discrimination and other forms of abuse that unfortunately have very long been a part of law enforcement history, as well as with the military. Um, another interesting sideline to that is that uh, many feel that the physical testing required for policing disadvantages women. And in some cases it does, but take note that back, uh, I think it was, a, it was at least a decade ago when LAPD uh, changed, not lowered, changed the requirements, the fitness requirements for their SWAT team a number of women were able to uh, pass that test, but also a significant uh, number of more men were also able to pass that test, uh, specifically minor minorities, uh, Latinos, and um, some that um, ethnic um, uh, considerations that uh, produce, like they tend to be a little smaller in stature than, than some white men or black men or white women or black women. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, but, but when you're when you're changing your um, uh, requirements, you're usually doing it uh, not to not to simply let women in. You're doing it because technology allows you to do it now, where it didn't before. Because we have uh, things that we use in in our job now that that we didn't even have access to before. No one even thought of it. Uh, but now with the advent of, of so much uh, automation and and um, improved equipment and and better training. Um, there's, there's no reason why you can't change your uh, requirements and still get the best candidates. Uh, and what benefits women will also benefit men. For example, when, when uh, a number, significant number of women got into policing and they argued for uh, lobby for uh, maternity leave, well, guess what happened? The men got paternity leave too. So you have to look long-term at these things and see what the advantages, the real advantages are when you make changes. And it doesn't mean you're lowering the standards. It means you're changing things because there's a valid reason for it. And I think that's, uh, that's pretty important as well when you're able to take uh, advantage of modern technology. I know in, in past conversations, we've talked about, um, I believe the number you said was 22% and it's sort of stalled in, in recent years. Um, I know you mentioned Superintendent Clark and, and sort of, um, you know, Toronto kind of taking the lead and, and, and using various um, community outreach and community education sort of to, to change perhaps the public perception of what a police officer might look like. I'm wondering though, whether, you know, if, if there's a little bit more to, to that piece as to why um, you think that it's sort of stalled in recent years. It, it kind of, hiring, one of the first problems with hiring and policing is that it, it tends to go in cycles. Everybody's hiring at once and then nobody's hiring. And then you have a ton of retirements and everybody's hiring again and then nobody's hiring. Um, so I think it's important that when you're in those cycles of, 
in the down cycles where you're not doing as much hiring, that's when you have to be working towards, okay, what can we do now that we didn't do before to attract more women and minorities to our police force uh, or police service? And if you look at, a, a, for example, a very diverse regions and they're all over Toronto, pick, pick one, uh, York, Peel, uh, Toronto, uh, huge numbers of diversity uh, within, within a small region. So uh, let's say you want more black women in your, uh, in your police service because your numbers are very low. So why don't we start by uh, having a black woman who's in the police service, who um, maybe has rank or what is well-respected, has done something outstanding. Why not have that person try, uh, use that person in your advertisements to, uh, to try to attract more women into your police service? Uh, and, and the same with, uh, with black men or Latinos or uh, any, any, any person or group that doesn't fit the normal white male profile of, of most police services. I think you'd be surprised at the success uh, that you would have with that sort of thing. When I started in 1989, there was only 8% of police officers in Canada, uh, women police officers in Canada. Um, and 30 years later, uh, that number has risen to 22. So essentially out of uh, 70,000 officers across Canada, there's only 15,000 women in policing according to Statistics Canada. And that represents about a 14% increase over 30 years. Uh, it, it's painfully slow. Uh, and minorities, even in, in 2019, which was the latest stat I was able to find, minorities in policing are, constitute only 8% of the police officers. That's, uh, we know that they constitute more than 8% of the population. So why aren't we hiring more of them? Progress in both categories has been far too slow. And I was wondering, uh, when I was uh, thinking about this, uh, why I, why haven't, because I was surprised that they were still so low. And I was thinking, why haven't they gotten uh, higher faster? Why aren't they recruiting more? And then uh, it struck me when I was listening to a researcher uh, last week, uh, he was doing a podcast from actually from Laurier, mm -hmm. and he was uh, talking about his research and how to make it become policy. And, and when I was listening to him, I realized that what he was saying also applies to policing. And, um, uh, you know, when you can identify the problem you, that you want to correct, in this case, we want more women and minorities in policing, what you actually want to do is translate that knowledge for policy impact, and you get the attention of three key areas. And those three areas are, one, the media. Keep the problem in the media. Make the, make the media uh, aware and get them to write articles on um, why there are so few women and minorities in policing. And, and keep it up, like keep, you know, have them look at uh, different, uh, different areas of Toronto, different parts of Canada, and what's been successful and what hasn't. The second thing is civil society. Things like, let's face it, things like marches and protests, like Black Lives Matter and that sort of thing. And, um, and every protest or, or march that happens after someone gets beaten or killed down in, down in the States, look at the publicity that comes out of that. Um, that has an effect on the public. And the public then it gets starts uh, thinking about okay well why don't we have more black officers in our police service um, and it, and it builds up from there and the third thing is uh, the government uh, force change to happen with new policies that will effectively address the problems like we know we have a shortage of uh, women and minorities so why isn't our government doing a little bit more to encourage the the uh, the hiring of more of these uh, um, areas where we're, we're lacking, where we have few black officers, we have few women. So the, what we're saying is that 
women and minorities, they tend to only get attention sporadically when something happens, some event happens to bring it to the forefront. But the pressure to hire women and minorities should be continuous, but it's not. It only happens sporadically. And there are other things that uh, can be done to entice women and minorities to enter policing, uh, but the primary focus needs to be on changing your approach to recruiting and retaining women and minorities by focusing on what they want to go along with the, the job of law enforcement. And that's what we addressed earlier, but what they were looking for what attracts them uh, to a job. And, and like I said earlier, it's not always the same thing that attracts men. Right. Uh, so in the end, the, you know, we, we have two major things that must happen in order to uh, attract, retain, and, and advance uh, the movement of women in policing. And that is, uh, I think that um, it goes without saying that the policing and the Tullock report brought this out very strongly. We have to have an independent body uh, to handle police discipline because we've so clearly shown that we do a terrible job of it ourselves and, and it really needs to be done uh, on the outside. And the penalties, um, when a police officer makes an honest mistake, that's one thing. Um, accidents can happen, but when it's done um, with malice or knowingly, uh, the penalty has to fit the crime. And that includes firing a police officer, though it's very rare that it ever happens. It needs to happen more often because how can we possibly trust, how can the public trust a police service that has one or more criminals uh, in uniform? Uh, it doesn't do anything to build public trust. And that's uh, one of the things that, uh, that the public's very much aware of right now. And the other thing is that no, that no one ever talks about is that real men must step up and encourage other men within their agency to act accordingly. Society will no longer tolerate the abuse, the harassment and the discrimination that women and minorities have endured since they entered policing. And it's clearly a time for change. And the key lies, again, in hiring educated individuals in the first place. And, and I say this um, when I say real men. I mean, I mean men that, that recognize right from wrong. And they're all out there. They all have the ability to do it. The question is, will they do it? I know that um, I've been in situations where I saw during, the, during my 30 years things happen that, that should not have happened. And if someone steps forward, if someone steps up and says, no, don't do that. This is not right. We're not doing that. Uh, what a difference that can start to make in a police service. But nobody ever talks about this. And nobody ever talks about one person in the police service uh, stepping up and saying, we're not doing this anymore, or we're not going to do it that way, and, and tell them why. And on, you know, on an educated evaluation of, of or assessment of what they're, they're dealing with at the time. And it's, it's, I think it's amazing uh, what can happen. I also know, and I've also uh, seen it happen where one person tried to do that, they didn't get any support, and then they were more or less, um, I, don't, I don't want to use the word banished, but they, uh, they were, and I don't want to say the word punished, but they, they felt the consequences of it. But we need more people now, uh, men and women, standing up in the, in the police service and saying, we're not doing this anymore. Like this has to change. This isn't how, this is, it's not right. And we're not going to do this action, whatever that might be. But they will know, they will know that it's wrong in the first place. Um, but having the courage of individual officers to step up and say, it has to change. And it has to change because our, uh, our policing, our policing has never been in more dire straits right now uh, than they are right now. Um, and, it, and like I said, if we don't start making changes now, 
White, Church, White Cross is, uh, is right. If this is a, this is a watershed moment, um, we have to do something uh, to improve our policing uh, down the line. I was uh, mentioning earlier uh, before we went on air that I did a presentation at the University of Regina uh, back in 2007. Uh, and at the time I was there as president of the International Association of Women with Police. And I, I had a couple of slides at the end that, that talked about uh, what history has taught us and what changes we need to make uh, or this is what's going to happen. And, and you know what, uh, changes weren't made and we're no better off. In fact, we're probably worse off now than we were in 2007 because no one has stepped up to say, you know what, education is key to this. Uh, we're, going to, uh, we're going to hire educated officers. We're going to, for officers who are already here, we're going to improve. And a lot of police services have done this. We're going to allow you to continue your education. Uh, I know, for example, a lot of the students that I teach in my courses at, uh, at Wilfrid Laurier are, are already serving police officers. And they're of every rank from a constable to a cadet down or up to uh, superintendents and above. Uh, so there's a, there are a lot of people taking advantage of that. And it's going to it'll lead to a much better police service, but it's, we're, we're almost in a crunch for time here because if the public doesn't start seeing change soon, good change soon, uh, they're not going to be patient much longer. I think the public's put up with a, an awful lot from, from policing that, that didn't have to happen, probably more so in the States than in Canada, but we certainly have our own uh, uh, bad dogs here in, in Canada as well. Well, um, very interesting uh, conversation here today. Um, thanks so much for joining us and providing your insights. I know it'll definitely get our audience thinking. <laughs> I hope so. That's always my aim. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Blue Line, the podcast. Be sure to check us out on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay up to date on all your Canadian policing news at blueline.ca. Thanks again to everyone listening, especially those out there on the front lines protecting our communities. We see you and stay safe. With Laurier's 100% online degree programs, you can earn your undergraduate or graduate degree from a top-ranked university with an academic and institutional tradition that's over 100 years old. Choose from a Bachelor of Arts in Policing, Bachelor of Arts in Criminology and Policing, Master of Public Safety, and five graduate diplomas in the areas of Emergency Management, National Security, Countering Crime, Border Strategies, and GIS and Data Analytics. Transfer credits apply for basic constable training towards a BA in policing. For more information, visit www.laurierpublicsafety.com. Thank you for joining Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. Thank you.